Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, Oak City Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. We are in week three of a series called Connecting the Dots, how the little stories of the Bible tell God's big story and help us understand our story, and I'm really glad that you've joined us for this. If you're, if you're new to this or just haven't checked in in a few weeks, we're doing this in conjunction with a Bible reading plan through an app called Version, called the Essential 100. If you go to um, the Oak City Church website and click on the series, the, um, series page for connecting the dots, you'll see an invite to that plan within Version, and it, it'll let you get on with folks from Oak City Church. There's 80-some folks on there. And the comments are part of what makes it great. And so we just really encourage you getting into the Bible uh, on your own and then hearing how God is speaking to other people um, through that is fantastic. And, and so it's all working together. It's not too late. We're 15 days in. You can catch up. Uh, if you have been doing it, know, and we'll put this on there, that we're going to go to five days a week, so Monday through Friday, and then we give you the weekends to read something else. Um, and it's going to confuse us with the U version dates, but it'll be okay because it, it'll just make the preaching series be in line with the things that we're reading. So this week we're reading days 16 through 20. All right, and thanks to everybody that's participating in that and, and putting comments up. Uh, they're fantastic. So the little story today is not so little. It's the story of Joseph. It might be one of the longest stories in the Bible about an individual. It's, uh, it's 14 chapters long, and it is an epic uh, tale. Maybe my favorite individual story uh, in the Bible. And so I'm going to preach through a little story and then talk about how it pushes the big story forward. And within that, talk about how it helps us understand our story and really draw out two points about how it helps us understand and make sense of our story. And the, and the format, just because it's a long story and to help you understand how I'm going through it, I'm going to use what I've talked about the last few weeks, that stories have settings and then they have stresses and then they search and try and figure out how we're going to fix the problem, and then they have a solution, and they have a new setting, and then they really move on to another stress. And so this week, I'm going to start real briefly talking about Joseph's setting, and then stress number one and solution number one, stress number two, solution number two, stress number three, solution number three, and so on. And so just to help you understand where we are um, in this message. So, so Joseph... Uh, the setting for his story follows off of last week's story. It was about Abraham, and Abraham, at the end of last week, he's got Isaac. God calls him to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him and then stops him at the last minute. I talked about how that is a picture of Jesus. It's the same place where Jesus is going to go to Calvary, and, and it's a picture of a father's um, you know, heart towards his, his son and his people. Now, Isaac marries Rachel. Uh, he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is his own epic tale, and Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They become super important. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which means struggle, and that's where the name of the nation comes from, and the 12, the 12 sons are the 12 tribes of, of Israel. But at this point, they're just a tribe in a land amongst a bunch of other tribes and clans, and they're just trying to survive and live out this promise that God had given them. They're shepherds and they're farmers. And Joseph will be one of those 12 sons. He is the 11th of the 12 sons of Jacob. So Joseph's 
setting is family, uh, tribe, land, promise, abundance. They're doing pretty well for themselves. That's his setting. And his stress, his first stress, stress number one is family. And stress number one, probably for every single one of us, setting and stress is both family because uh, that's how it works in, in a fallen world. I say this a lot about family in various ways, but we get on each other's nerves the most because we know each other's sin the best. It just makes sense that we're broken, sinful, rebellious people who don't like taking responsibility for the things we do wrong. And so the people closest to you are the people that are going to understand that. And without the gospel, our families are doomed for like mediocrity at best. <laughs> the gospel like challenges us, mandates us, allows us, enables us to own our stuff with humility and to forgive each other with humility. Um, and if we don't have it, we're in trouble and we, we're going to see that play itself out. Uh, in the story of Joseph. Now, within that setting, Joseph is the ultimate annoying little brother. I apologize to little brothers everywhere. I am a little brother, although only of two. I think the more siblings you have and the further down the totem pole you are, the more potential there is for this to play itself out. When we uh, realized we're going to have a handful of kids, I, I got a book from the library called The Birth Order Book by Kevin Lehman. And, and one of the things I remember about that is they said the youngest sibling, and the longer the line is, the more this plays itself out, are the most likely to be comedians because they're always fighting to entertain, to get people's attention, to be like, here I am. You know, the oldest never had to fight for attention because parents, it's their first kid, everybody's grandparents, everybody's focusing their attention on this kid. And so the oldest feels the pressure of expectations, but the youngest is just trying to get somebody to know that they're there because, you know, the first kid, you're like, oh, it's a baby. Second kid, you're like, oh, another baby. And then by the last kid, you're like, a baby? I mean, it's just how it goes. And, and Joseph plays, he plays into that. Uh, on top of that, Jacob plays favorites, and Joseph is his father's favorite, and that plays out in his family dynamics. Spot dads don't play favorites. As I say that, I can hear maybe literally, because we're pre-recording this, my other kids saying, Dad, you should practice what you preach because everybody knows that Abigail is your favorite. Abigail is my favorite daughter. She is my favorite daughter because she's the only daughter I have, and she's a girl, and so I treat her differently, and I treat my sons differently than I treat each other, and I try really hard not to play favorites because I don't have any favorites, believe me. But Joseph, or Jacob, excuse me, makes it blatant, and then he makes a, a coat of many colors for Joseph to signify so everybody would know, this is my favorite kid. <laughs> um, Joseph was a, is a tattletale. He gives a bad report of his brothers, and that's fine. Sometimes you need to, you know, bring the truth forward. But sometimes, sometimes you tell on other people just because it makes you feel better about yourself, not because it moves the situation forward, and that seems to be what's happening here. And then Joseph has these two dreams that are fine. You have dreams, you got to do, do what you do with that, but you don't have to tell everybody. So he has a dream where, where, um, about his brothers bowing down to him. And, and so he has a dream about his sheaf of grain. So you put grain together, tie it up, and his sheaf is standing, and his brothers are all bowed down around his sheaf of grain. And he tells them that. Like, why do you tell them that? Your older brother's that. You're just asking for it. And then he's got a dream about how the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down around his star, Joseph. So the sun and the moon is his mom and his dad. And so he tells everybody that dream. And even his dad is annoyed by that. 
You know, so there are some dynamics at play at this. In some ways, he's asking for this. I will never forget a couple of years ago talking to somebody um, here at church who was the youngest of three brothers and him talking about this dynamic playing itself out in his own family and saying his dad at one point told his oldest brother just to go ahead and beat him up because he needed it. He just needed it. <laughs> I thought, okay, just filed that away. Michael, Matthew, you can't do that. But I just, there's some dynamics that, that are just true. And so the brothers in this story, Joseph's older brothers, decide uh, to get rid of him. And a couple of them just are like, let's kill him. I mean, they're kind of bad dudes, I guess. And then one, Reuben, I think it is, says, no, let's just throw him in a pit. And then I think, I might have the names wrong, which ones it is. But one of them decides, hey, let's sell him without telling the other brothers because he knows they're going to kill him. And so they sell him to a caravan going down to Egypt. And so that is stress. Like he was done wrong by his family and a lot of, all of us to some extent, but a lot of you to some great extent know that stress of being done wrong by your family. Solution number one, I don't know how to word this better than this, but the Lord was with Joseph. And we're going to see this repeated, reiterated throughout the story. Now, Joseph had been uh, brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down from the promised land to Egypt. But the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of the Egyptian master, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed uh, in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of everything he had. And so there is, like, stress, but then there's search, and then there's solution, and he ends up in a decent, in a decent spot. Now, stress number two, Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife. So Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So Joseph's a young man, probably 19, 20, 21 at this point, and um, his, his boss's wife has a hots for him. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, and I skip some verses here, how then can I do this great wickedness in sin against God? It's like, I'm going to do the right thing. No, I'm not going to lie with you. So she approaches, he keeps after him, and one day... She approaches him when it's just her and him in the house, and he's like, no, I'm not doing it. And she grabs his robe, and he runs out the house, and she tears his robe off. So he runs out the house naked, which is not, like, this is not a good scene, you know? And she screams, hey, he tried to attack me. And he's like, no, I didn't, but who are you going to believe at that point? And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant, Joseph, treated me, the Potiphar's anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, in a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So stress number two. Solution number two, again, we hear, but the Lord was with Joseph. And so the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it. So I guess if you got to be in prison, maybe it's best you can do as the warden is a good friend. Uh, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Honestly, like this is helpful at this point, but if I'm Joseph, I'm kind of feeling like this thing is trending in the wrong direction. You know, like we've got valleys and we've got peaks, but our valleys are going deeper than our peaks are going up. 
and then deeper and then up. And so we're just trending in, in a bad place. One of, my, one of my favorite sermons ever is the sermon Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, gave on Joseph. And I remember him talking about when you, when the best thing you got going for you is that you're good friends with the warden, like things could be a lot better. You know, like it's just not going that well uh, overall. So that's solution number two. We're okay, but not great. Uh, stress number three, the cupbearer uh, forgets Joseph. So Pharaoh has a cupbearer who tastes all his food in case anybody's trying to poison uh, Pharaoh and a baker, and he it doesn't say why, throws them in jail with Joseph, and they're there for a period of time, and then they have a dream, and they don't know what to do about it. It says, Joseph came to them one morning. He saw that they were troubled. He asked Pharaoh's officers, the cupbearer and the baker, uh, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And so Joseph responds, and throughout this, we just get windows into Joseph's emotional state and his soul and what's going on, and this is one of them. Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Do not interpretations belong to God. Joseph's had some things happen to him by this point. You know, he's had some bad things happen to him. He's had some good things happen to him. I'm guessing he sees God in some of them, but not in others of them. And that's just life. And all of us are kind of like that. You know, we've got periods in our time, in our life that we're, we're low and periods that we're high. And sometimes we can make sense of and sometimes we can't. But his faith just seems as strong as ever through all of that. He's still walking with God, trusting that God is going to do his thing. And so he interprets their dreams. Uh, and it's going to go well for the cupbearer, but bad for the baker. But he makes a request to the cupbearer. He says, hey, remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Uh, which is all true, you know. He's making it, but you can tell, like, he's still confused about what's really going on. And even the language is, I was stolen, that's going to change later, um, pretty specifically. And you can see his maturity and his faith grow even in that. Uh, so he's making it, but he's not, but he hasn't dealt with what's happened to him and he doesn't understand it. And so here's the stress. The cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh and it says, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so this guy that he helps gets out, uh, but Joseph is stuck in prison. And solution number three, a couple years later, um, again, the Lord is with Joseph. So Pharaoh ends up having a dream, and this is a weird dream. Pharaoh has a dream about uh, seven fat cows coming up out of the Nile, which is kind of weird in itself, and then seven skinny cows follow the fat cows, and they eat the fat cows. Well, that's a nightmare. That's not a dream. That's like a bizarre horror type thing, you know? And then he's got seven plump ears of corn that are devoured by seven skinny ears of corn. And so this thing shakes him, and he's like, hey, we got to figure out what these dreams mean. And so he calls his, you know, religious people and magicians and all that. Nobody can figure out what the dream means. And the cupbearer is in the presence of Pharaoh and sees all this stuff, and he's like, oh, shoot, there was that guy, and I said I would remember him, but I forgot him. And he's like, hey, uh, Pharaoh, I got an idea, like there's this guy and he knows how to do it. And so Pharaoh brings Joseph from prison in front of Pharaoh and says to him, I've had a dream 
There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And so this is his moment. Like, this is his big moment. After everything he's been through, his brothers abuse him and desert him. He's falsely accused after resisting a temptation that many would have given into. He did the right thing, uh, and then the wrong thing happens to him. He's forgotten by a guy who, you know, he helped out quite a bit. And, and twice in the story, it's declared the Lord is with Joseph. But it's like the Lord was with Joseph a little too late. Like, if the Lord had been with Joseph a step earlier in the story, then the Lord wouldn't have needed to be with Joseph so much later in the story. You know, you're just trying to figure out what God's doing in that stuff. And so here he is in front of the most powerful man in the world, and, and he's got a big problem, and you're the only one that's got a solution. If ever you're going to be like, okay, I got this. Like, it's all built up to this point. I know how to interpret deems. I did it with my brothers. I did it with the cupbearer and the baker in prison. Like, I can do this, and, um, and, and he says to Pharaoh, it is not in me. He basically says to Pharaoh, hey, I can't do it. But then he says, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And this is such an amazing line because Pharaoh is God. Pharaoh thinks he's God. All the Egyptians think Pharaoh is God. They treat him as God. And so here Joseph says, listen, I can't help you out, but my God can that's a really risky proposition. The faith that he expresses in this scene is, is really, mag- it's tremendous, the faith that he expresses. And here is the, here is the I'm only going to draw out like two lines that I would say apply, help us understand our story of, of the many you could pick. But God is with you even when it doesn't seem like God is with you. God is with you even when it doesn't seem like God is with you. And at one level, that, that's a completely basic thing to say. At another level, there's, there won't be a harder thing that you have to accept in your life. Like, it's hard to say that because I know what many of you have gone through. And they're, they're hard, unbearable things. And yet, this story is clearly telling us that God is with us, even when it doesn't seem to us like God is with us. When it doesn't seem like he's in control, he's completely in control. And that's gonna, that sentiment is going to grow as we go through the story. Um, that sermon that Andy Stanley gave on Joseph, this is, this is 15 years ago I heard this sermon, and his line that he pulled through it was, what would somebody in my situation do if they were absolutely convinced that God was with him? Because he said that's how Joseph acts in every scene is He's, he's absolutely convinced that God is with him, and so he does what someone would do when they're absolutely convinced that God is with him. He has the courage to say to Pharaoh, hey, I can't do it. I can't help you out. But God can, knowing the consequences that that could bring in that situation. But he does it because he's absolutely convinced that God is with him. And, and here, it comes together for Joseph in ways that he, he probably could never fathom. Uh, He tells Joseph that the dream means there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. He lays out a detailed plan. He says, during those seven years of abundance, take 20% of everything and just store it away so that during the seven years of famine, you'll have enough not just for the Egyptians, but for everybody else too, and you'll gain power. He suggests that Pharaoh appoint 
you know, a wise man to oversee the whole project. And Pharaoh says to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God, whom God is with? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You're the man. You'll be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. He makes him like second in command of all of Egypt. It is a, tar- a rags to riches like no other. You know, I get, it's just hard to conceive of what that would be like. The lottery got up to $750 million this, this weekend. It's, it's kind of like that. Like all of a sudden you've got hundreds of millions of dollars and can do whatever you want. You know, it's that type of turn of events. But more because it's power, uh, not just wealth, which isn't power. It's, it's power. Um, I, read a, I read the biography of Ulysses Grant earlier this year or last year and, or, or whenever. And Grant was, was, he drank himself out of the army. He couldn't hold a job, couldn't provide for his family, was working as a clerk in his dad's leather goods store when the Civil War started re-enrolled in the army because he knew how to be in the army, ended up being the most successful general in the western part of the United States for the Union Army, became the general of the Army of the Potomac and defeated Lee, and then ended up becoming president of the United States. It's that type of story, but it happens like that. Like just in an instant, um, it happens. And let me, just in, just to kind of an aside, but, um, but, you know, just know, just for, for those of you that are skeptical about it, um, there's, a, there's a documentary called Patterns of Evidence Exodus by this filmmaker. And he grew up in church, but like, it seems like he wasn't really paying that much attention to God. He got older and decided to address some of his own doubts and skepticism using his filmmaking skills. And so he did this documentary on the Exodus. And what he found will blow you away. <laughs> like he, he finds this... Um, the, the Israelite people were from that part of the world were Semites, and so they go down to Egypt. But the way they do life, the way they do architecture, the way they do pottery, the way they bury their dead is totally different than what the Egyptians did. So they can tell there's this giant Semitic settlement at a certain layer in the archaeology around, I think it's Cairo, you know. But they, but they can tell there's this huge Semitic settlement that doesn't make sense to be there you know, to have that many people there. And in it, there's a courtyard of this complex, you know, like this giant house. And in the courtyard, there are 12 graves. And so there's 12 brothers, and they're all going to end up in Egypt with Joseph in 12 graves. And the, the portico has 12 pillars, seemingly for the 12 brothers. And one of the graves is this pyramid, which is how the Egyptians obviously honor their dead. And inside the pyramid is this statue that's twice the size of a man in the stat of an esteemed figure, and he's got a robe, a striped robe, like a many-colored robe on, and the bones are gone from the grave, which the guy said, grave robbers don't steal bones because they're not worth anything. But in the Exodus story, the Israelites, when they go back to the promised land, take the bones of Joseph. There's all this evidence that it's exactly the way the Bible said it. Look it up, find it. I've got a copy of it if you want it. This is real. This happened. God did this, and God loves you in this way. So Joseph, Joseph ends up, like everything comes up aces for him. He, uh, he gets this prominent position. He gets married. 
uh, Pharaoh changes his name to something that, that probably means God speaks and God lives. He has two kids. It's all going the way that he said it would, and everything's going according to plan. And yet you get the sense underneath that that it's not, like that this stuff is all still there and Joseph still has to, to deal with it. He names this kid, one indication of this, he names his kids Manasseh and Ephraim. And those names, Manasseh means God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. Which is like, if he made you forget that, would you name your kid something that would constantly remind you of that? And Ephraim means, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Which again, seems a little bit contradictory. It's kind of like when you're talking to people about something that happened in their past, they're like, oh yeah, I'm over it. I'm totally over it. Like, it doesn't bother me at all anymore. Totally, totally. And you just don't, you just don't believe it, you know. Uh, there was a guy at a, at a marriage thing I was at years ago, and, and um, they were talking about family of origin and how that affects your life. And this guy is like in his 60s, super successful. And he said the thing that shaped him the most was the fact that his dad never came to his high school football games. I'm like, wow. Like that stuff is layered deep in there, and yet we've all got that stuff. Um, and part of this story is God, God wants that, and he can deal with it. So here's stress number four in his story, and it's family again. And that's kind of how it works, you know. So it seems like for about nine years after he goes in front of Pharaoh, it goes according to plan. They have the years of plenty. They're a couple years into the famine. And now people from surrounding nations are starting to come to Egypt asking for help. And Joseph's brothers come from Canaan, from Israel, down to Egypt, and they're asking for help. And they know, they don't know who Joseph is, but Joseph knows who they are. And it brings everything back up for him. And you can tell in those chapters, it just messes with him. He thought this was over, but it's not. It says he remembers those dreams that he had about his brothers as if he'd kind of forgotten about them and thought, well, that meant nothing. You know, maybe it wasn't there, but then it all comes back to him. Honestly, this is why we end up in therapy. You know, we move on, we survive, but we don't really move past. We don't really move past it. We don't deal with it. And you kind of get stuck emotionally in a place where that stuff happened to you. And, and this all seems like Joseph's therapy uh, because all those things are still, are still with him. I said this last week about Abraham, that God never stops asking you to go. And Abraham's story had these ups and downs, and then they finally have the baby that they were promised in Isaac 25 years later. But then, but then 12, 13, 14 years on from that, God asks him to sacrifice Isaac. And so just when you think we're past it, we're not. Joseph has all these things going for him, but God still wants to deal with these things. He still wants to bring healing. He still wants to bring reconciliation. He's still moving the story forward. And there are amazing scenes in the story. Um, there's a scene just in the thick of it when Joseph is with his brothers, but he's speaking Egyptian and they speak Hebrew to each other and he doesn't they don't know that he still understands Hebrew, and so he can understand them. And they're talking to one another, saying, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, Joseph, from 20 years ago, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. And just imagine what that does to Joseph standing there and remembering these things that he's tried so hard to forget and hearing his brother's anguish. That is why this distress has come upon us. 
And Reuben said, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. We are getting what we deserve. And it says, Joseph, now they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter. Then he turned away from them, and he wept. He wept. Like, this is bringing a, a, an element of healing to him to realize he wasn't forgotten, that what happened to him mattered. It was seen. It didn't just go away, that there is some justice involved in it. Then he, um, he hears that his, in this scene where I'm skipping around, his, that his father, you know, still, he's still just on his father's mind at heart. Um, at one point, one of the brothers says, then your servant, my father, said to us, um, you know that my wife bore me two sons. So this is Jacob talking about Joseph and, and uh, Benjamin, who were the two sons of Rachel. One left me, that's Joseph, left me, was taken from me. And I said, surely he's been torn to pieces and I've never seen him since. And if you take this other one, Benjamin, also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. And so you can just, like Joseph gets to hear that his father, his father loves him. And that is, that's just got to, again, bring some element of healing to him. And then in the climactic scene of this story, Joseph, the tension builds and Joseph can't take it anymore. And he's got these Egyptian officials and his brothers and uh, he, he cries, make everyone go out for me. And so no one stayed with him. And Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud that the Egyptians heard it, the household of Pharaoh, everybody heard it because he's just, it's breaking loose. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And like, what a moment. I mean, maybe my favorite scene in any movie is the scene from Braveheart where he's in the thing and you know, I am Maximus, Decimus, Meridius, commander of the armies of the north. And you're like this big reveal. That's the scene. That's the emotion in this scene. And he says, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. They're like, oh, we are in so much trouble right now. And Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. The statements he makes here are just, they just blow your mind. You, because, don't be distressed because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over uh, all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. And so solution number four ends up being forgiveness and reconciliation. And so if that first statement I made about how it helps us comprehend our stories is that God is with you even when you don't think God is with you. The second one is that because God is with you, you can be reconciled to those around you. And that's what we see in Joseph. There is a maturity in him because of his years of walking with God. He doesn't feel the need to punish his brothers. I mean, vengeance is the Lord's, and he lives that out. And not just like in, in deed, but you, like he feels it. 
he believes it. His faith has led him to that place. He shows mercy to them because he understands that God has been merciful to him. Uh, he understands that the things that he's experienced serve a purpose beyond him. In the context of the way we're talking about this little stories and the big story and help us understand our story, he understands that his story is not about him. It's not his story. It's God's story, and his story is serving a purpose in God's bigger story, and it's worth it. And that's maturity. That's emotional maturity. That's spiritual maturity. Uh, that's God's goal for us. And so um, just advancing that a little bit, Joseph prepared his chariot when, when Jacob is coming to Egypt and, and uh, went up to meet his, Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck a good while. And man, what a scene. I'm doing some work on this the other day in a Panera up by my house, and I get to this part, and it's so emotional, the whole story, and I'm like <laughs> in the corner crying, hoping people aren't looking at me. You know, I, it's just a great, great story. Um, and that's the story of Joseph, the little story of Joseph. Now, how does it fit into God's big story from a really pragmatic standpoint? God's made a promise to Abraham to make him a great nation. They're going to die as a result of a famine. And he sends Joseph down so that there's provision for them so that they can make it through this family. It's their survival. Uh, beyond that, like there's a, there's a promise he makes to Abraham that, that Abraham's seed will be a blessing to the world. And Joseph is a blessing to the nations. There are nations that come to Egypt and they're able to survive that famine because of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams and, and his wisdom in that. One pastor said through Joseph, God is reversing the curse. He is unraveling violence through forgiveness, unrighteousness through righteousness, and hunger through wisdom. And so you see that in the bigger picture of the story. And most of all, Joseph is an echo uh, in the big story of the ultimate solution, which is going to be Jesus. He is an echo of the gospel. One suffers so that many may live. One suffers so that many may live. And that is what Christ does for you and me on the cross. He suffers in a way that only he can suffer so that we might have the hope of eternal life, the promise of eternal life with him, righteous before the Father forever. That's the gospel. And Joseph is clearly a picture of the gospel. Uh, Jesus, like Joseph, was the object of his, his father's special love. Jesus, like Joseph, had promises of divine exaltation. Like Joseph, he was mocked by his family. Like Joseph, he sold for pieces of silver. He's stripped of his robe. He's delivered up to the Gentile. Jesus is falsely accused. Just like Joseph, he's faithful amid temptation. Just like Joseph, he's thrown into prison. He stands before rulers. His power was acknowledged by the people in authority over him. He saves his rebellious brothers from death when they realize who he is. Uh, like Joseph, he's exalted after and through humili humiliation. Jesus, like Joseph, embraces God's purpose, even though it brings him intense physical arm. He's the instrument of, that God uses at the hands of the Gentiles to bring blessing to his people. He welcomes Gentiles to be a part of his family, non-Jewish folks to be a part of his family, and people are going to bow their knee before Jesus the way they did with Joseph. He's clearly a picture of what God is doing in the big story, and, and you should be blown away by that and convicted. Ken, this week, in the comments, he said, 
It's great. It was pretty pointed, too. Like, why are we so quick to identify with Joseph and the things that people have done wrong to us and not the brothers and the things that we've done wrong to the people around us? And he's absolutely right. You know, on one level, we can ask, like, how can we forgive the people around us that have done wrong to us? But we have to be asking, how can they forgive us for the things that we've done wrong to them? And ultimately, how can God forgive me for the things that I, the ways that I have sinned against him? Uh, and we're meant to look at the story in that way and to realize uh, the mercy that God has shown us. I want to um, leave you just by touching on those two statements I made about how they help us understand our story, that God is with you even when it doesn't seem like God is with you. And um, I know, I'm, I, like I said before, I know I'm saying a lot with that. And, uh, and, if, and, if, and if you, if, like that just rubs you the wrong way. If you need help understanding that, if you just need help, and not understanding, but just working through it, like that's what we're here for. And so I would love to, to do that. I put late this week in one of the comments uh, a reference. To, it's Acts chapter 2. I said 3, but 2 about Jesus. Again, a picture that, that Peter in his sermon about um, at Pentecost said that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But you crucified and, and he was killed by the hands of lawless men. Like this, this, we did it, but it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And it echoes what happens with Joseph and, and what happens with you and me in life is hard. It is a mystery um, that we're not going to solve, but we got to accept. And it's helpful when you do. Um, but, it, but it's maturity and it takes time. And so we would love to be here for you in that. And then because God is with you, you can be reconciled to those around you. Um, after Jacob, Joseph's father, dies in Egypt, his brothers, it all comes back up for his brothers. They're like, now Joseph's going to kill us because Jacob's gone. Like, and that's how sin works, you know, that we just, I don't know, it just keeps coming back to us. And Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Such faith. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And that is the reconciliation that Jesus, when he says, forgive those as you have been forgiven, like the gospel is supposed to bleed that type of forgiveness and reconciliation um, out. And that, when I said that God will never stop asking you to go, is what I'm talking about. He wants to heal those wounds in your family. Um, and, and we have to be willing to continue to pursue that type of forgiveness and reconciliation in all of our relationships. Heaven is not going to be a bunch of people walking around who have issues with each other, right? It'll all be worked out. And if he's going to work it out then, he wants to work it out now. And I know that's a two-way street. And so, you know, it's not all on you. But in whatever degree it's on you, uh, we need to make sure that we are, we are doing whatever we can to mend relationships. And so let him do that work in you and through you. And if we can help, uh, let us help. Father, thanks for just this epic story. I thank you for the emotion of it. I thank you that we get in touch with the emotion that you have for us, Lord, through it. 
and that it is a picture um, that one is going to come who is going to suffer for the benefit of many, and that Jesus has come and he has suffered at our hands for our benefit. And Lord, would we know um, his mercy with those that are listening today that haven't accepted their need for what Christ has done for him and the reality of what Christ has done for them, bow their knee to you today and surrender their life to you, God, and um, be transformed. And with those of us that have been walking with you for a while, surrender to the conviction that you have on our heart about understanding where you are in our story um, and also the work that you want to do in our relationships. God, we love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.